Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. Welcome to our segment, Every Day is Earth Day, supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner, member NCUA, more at minvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. And I've got a very special guest this morning who is a geography professor here at Minnesota State University. And he spent the bulk of 2020 as a Jefferson Science Fellow. And that means he was advising the government agency on how to implement climate change science into development efforts overseas. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Karen. It's very nice to be back with you. It's great to have you on, too. So Thanks. you teach geography here, and you I don't know, are you still the chair of the department? I am no longer the chair of the oh. department. Twelve years I was chair <laughs> okay. of the department. And I recently had sabbatical leave, which gave me the opportunity to go work in Washington, D.C. And uh, when I left for that sabbatical, I stepped down as chair. Well, you certainly had an interesting year. So it's very hard to become a fellow. So it's, it's really an honor. Uh, you were one it of is. eight Jefferson Fellows in the U.S. for the year. And the first here from Minnesota State University. So congratulations for that. Thank you. But you worked in what's called USAID, States Agency for International Development. United States Agency for International Development. And it's based in Washington, D.C. What exactly is that? Okay. So everybody's familiar with the U.S. Department of State. Right. All right. USAID is an independent federal agency that works with the U.S. Department of State. That is our international development arm. The foreign relations budget for our country includes the U.S. Department of State and USAID. And that is about six-tenths of one percent of the entire federal budget. Now, I'm going to pull out a number, and it sounds huge. That's $50 billion a year. It does sound like a lot. It sounds like a lot, but that's only half of a percent of our federal budget. Half of a percent is the entire foreign budget for the country, not including the military, state and AID, and about half of that, about $25 billion a year, we dedicate to helping other countries develop. And so we, we contract with large non-governmental organizations to implement sometimes a road building program, sometimes a school building program, but more often than not, how to uh, have democratic elections how to administer education, uh, and other, other things we take for granted, insurance industries. How do you set up an insurance industry in a country that doesn't have enough money to pay private insurance? This is what USAID does. So some big world problems. Huge world problems. We but you specifically this. are went in on climate change, correct? So that's correct. So how, how did that come about? What's you know your background? I know is geography, so you've done a lot of studies in different areas, and I took a class from you in mountains as yeah. well. So it was very <laughs> interesting. So let's let's. How did you get from there to here? All right. So I'll tell you what I did at USAID, or what USAID does with climate. If our government and our taxpayer dollars are going to invest $25 billion a year in other countries, we want to make sure that climate change doesn't wipe it out. Right. The easy part is don't build a road in the flood zone. 
don't build a school. That's, that's the easy part. The hard part is thinking even further, if you will, downstream, down the socioeconomic stream. One example, hurricanes. Hurricanes are increasing. You wouldn't naturally think of hurricanes and uh, human trafficking going together. No, not really. No. Well, this is the kind of thing that I worked on and thought about. So let's go to Central America, where there have been a lot of hurricanes recently. And there, when there are hurricanes, schools are wiped out, homes are wiped out, lots of buildings are wiped out, roads are wiped out. Where do people go? They go to whatever the shelter is. The sure. shelter may be a school, which sometimes also get wiped out. It may be a gymnasium, a community center, whatever it is, they go there. Well, who's there? The women and the children are there. All right. The men may be off working or maybe they're where does the most sexual violence against women and children occur in the shelters Ooh. when they're seeking refuge from a hurricane. And so it turns out when USAID wants to invest in disaster recovery, uh, climate resilience, if we can help, if you will, climate proof buildings, climate proof roads, we ultimately then can reduce gender-based violence in some of these situations. It, yeah, see, that didn't that did not cross my mind. So right. that's an interesting. I guess I think of it as a jump, but it really isn't. It isn't. Yeah. It, and so AI USAID has to think about this because they're standing up social programs, educational programs, government programs, and you don't necessarily think of an administrative program. How do you have to climate proof it? But you have to climate proof it. And so, and how does one climate proof? We can't climate proof our own country, let alone others. Well, if you're going to invest money for the very first time in uh, creating elections, well, do you roll out the old technology that can short out and it's not grounded? Or no, you roll out the latest technology that uh, may have uh, literally waterproof screens. I mean, this is this is some basic stuff. But if we think rural Africa, and it turns out that in some places in rural Africa, where you register to vote, you also have to register to live. There are two separate registration processes. And if there's a drought and you take your animals somewhere else where you can find water for them, but then it's time to vote, you can't vote where you moved your animals 50 or 100 miles. You have to go back home. But you can't go back home because now there's a flood where there was a drought. Sounds like a logistical nightmare. Logistical really. nightmares yeah. everywhere. And so USAID tries to help the government figure out and troubleshoot these problems of allow registration other places, not just where you're registered to live because you moved your animals. How about schooling? How do you hold a school when there are droughts when you can't find water? So on and so on. I could go on and on with these kinds of examples. How do you uh, help school children continue to go to school? Um, in coastal communities in, in rural Indonesia when sea level is rising. It turns out that um, when sea level rises, roads are flooded. Instead of uh, the kids having to get to the school or the teacher not being able to get to the school, vice versa, Indonesia turns out it has a pretty robust internet. And all you need to do is beef up the internet a little bit and kids can have distance school. So sort of like we're doing distance learning Like here. we're doing distance learning here. And so thinking of these solutions, but based on climate, anticipating where the water supply issues are gonna come from, where, uh, where are the storms gonna come from, and when you can anticipate 
then you can help stand up these social programs much better. This is the work I was doing. I took my physical knowledge as a physical geographer, knowing about both in both meteorology, climatology, uh, and ground geomorphology, and I put it all together, and then applying it on the human side. So you're like a think tank, essentially? Absolutely. I was the Office of Global Climate. Now, and the way USAID is set up is fascinating. In each country, there are generalists. Each country will have a, somewhere between 35 and 300 USAID staff. They're co-located with the embassy. Depends upon how big the program, how big the country. And they're generalists. They're people with master's degrees and PhDs, but in everything. All right. And when they need to do a specific thing, when they're doing hunger relief, the, or they're doing trying to grow appropriate crops, drought-tolerant crops, they, if you will, they phone home to D.C. to the experts, to the agronomy experts, all right, in the Ag Bureau. They phone home to the health experts in the Health Bureau. Do they not have these people in their country that are experts, or do their oh, experts need to talk to experts? It's it's all of the above. Okay. Believe me, every one of these developing countries has their own experts, but they may not have the economy to develop it well. Okay. And so we we help. We don't come in and do it for them. I was going to say, do you write them a check? Or we don't what, write what, them a check. How does that ask, work then? So the way it works is on a consulting basis, and this is some of the work I actually did. I was overseas in Kenya, and I was overseas in Indonesia. I sat down with mid-level government ministers, and we said, what do you need? And they said, we need this. Okay, so we put it on our master plan, and then we write a five-year strategic plan that in this country, we call it a mission. So the State Department has embassies, USAID has missions. So that USAID mission, which works hand-in-hand with the embassy, uh, develops a five-year strategic plan that we're going to work on these level of women's and children's health. We're going to work on this level of education. We're going to this level of agriculture. We're going to work on this level of physical infrastructure. And then when we do that, we go and talk to the local peoples and say, okay, your national government said you need this road building project or you need this election project. How can we help you do that exactly? And we literally go out and we meet with local people who say, we need help doing it this way. Then we still we don't write them a check and say, here you go. No, no, no. There are large multinational non-governmental organizations, Mercy Corps, um, uh, Feed the Children. There are m- many. Uh, some others you've never heard of, DAI, on and on and on. And these are professional scientists and social scientists who are the development and aid workers. You read in the newspaper, oh, development workers, aid workers. These are people who go in the field and work in these tough places to implement these programs. Where are they from then? Are they local people? Are they brought in from other countries? Those people are usually brought from other countries. These are Americans. These are Brits. These are Germans. These are typically well-trained Westerners who are working uh, also with well-trained locals. who are on the ground implementing these programs. So USAID pays these so-called implementing partners to implement the programs. And so AID isn't physically on the ground themselves implementing the program. They're writing a check to the implementing partners who are on the ground doing the hard work. All right. And so did you have a specific project that you worked on? I did. Uh, being that you were in geography, did that matter? So each person maybe in their specific expertise area has yeah. a different role? I, 
I had an, what I thought was a fascinating project. Every USAID mission abroad, every five years, by law, is required to do a five-year strategic plan. And all those strategic plans were due the year that I was there. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. And so uh, we have over 100 missions abroad, and they all had to write their strategic plan. And one of the required elements in the strategic plan is what's called climate risk management. Which and is a, becoming more and more of a huge deal. I don't know how long. It is how, a huge deal. How long has that project specifically been going on in terms of the... Climate risk management? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was president before uh, Obama? <laughs> was it Bush? Or? Bush, whichever. Pre- yes, it yeah. was George W. Bush. Since the George W. Bush administration, there's been climate risk management at USAID. So really not, in the scope of things, not that long. Not that long. Less right. than 20 years. Yeah. And so these, these five-year strategic plans have to include climate risk management. How will we protect American tax, taxpayer investments abroad through climate risk management? And so... Every activity that they were thinking of doing, from the broadest brush, biggest picture thing, down to the most uh, tiniest little implementation thing, how do we consider how climate could adversely affect this program? When you say things, what type of things are we talking about, from little things to big things? I guess I'm uh, trying to picture a little. What? A little thing might be building a well. Okay. Okay. Uh, a big thing could be. Uh, standing up an entire entire insurance industry or a big thing could be negotiating water rights across borders in the Himalaya. So pretty uh, significant stuff. Pretty significant. <laughs> now, do you have to get the agreement? I mean, are the leaders of these countries, are they all a-okay with this, or do you only go in what you consider friendly countries that say we're okay with uh, this help? That's a great question. Um, USAID is in every country, just about every country who will let us be there. Okay, so it's, right. it maybe isn't everyone. Though. It's not everyone. And, and so having said that, this is fascinating. Portugal used to be a USAID donor country, but they grew. We helped them grow. They're now a donor to international oh. development interests. Okay, so there's a whole scale. It's not just rural Africa or rural Southeast Asia and then the West. There are all kinds of gradations. Several Caribbean island countries get a few dollars, get a little bit of input from AID, but not much. They're almost completely independent. But South Korea and Portugal used to be recipients of USAID money, no longer. Because they they, don't need it. They don't need it. We help their economies grow. We help develop them. And so they're they're now developed countries. Uh, And so it's it's a scale everywhere from, from that. And uh, so, how does this look? Who all is in a room? I mean, do you meet with lawmakers? Do you? I mean, who is? Who are you meeting with? Do you get together and you just throw ideas around? Or yeah. I'm just trying to picture how all this comes together and happens. Well, realize USAID is a large organization. There, uh, there are about twelve thousand employees at USAID. Good size. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the U.S. Department of State is about fifty thousand employees, but USAID has half the budget. So. The Office of Global Climate Change is, is, was a relatively small group, a couple of dozen folks. But we get marching orders. All right. From? From, well, ultimately from Congress. Okay. You get this many million dollars to implement these kind of programs. But then you also have to interface with all the other USAID programs because they have to be subject to climate risk management. And so on any given day, 
I might be at the computer all by myself typing, okay, reading a report, editing. Um, but then I also have to talk to the people in Indonesia. Now they're 12 hours different. Right. And so uh, at 9 p.m. I would get on the video call and talk to somebody who was 9 a.m. in Indonesia or in Timor. And we would talk to them, all right, what do you want to do? And that's, they would send me a rough draft. This is, this is what our five-year strategic plan looks like. This is what's in it. And I'd say, okay, let's work on these elements. India, well, I worked a fair bit on the, on the five-year strategic plan for India. And they have terrible, terrible air quality. And so the health issues related to air quality and air quality, the hotter it gets, the more particulates they get in the atmosphere. They want to try and have cooling stations to cool it down so people can find some air conditioning here and there. But that puts out more fossil fuel burning stuff. And then cooking uh, fuel in people's homes, just endless, terrible feedback loops for how this looks. And so chatting with the USAID staff, now chatting, literally sometimes talking to them on the phone, many times corresponding, how do we reduce fossil fuel burning? How do we reduce health issues that are related to climate change? How do we prepare for increased heat coming in these places? So as you're developing the strategic plan, is there somebody then who reviews that and says, yes, we can do this, no, we can't do that? Or what happens to it? I mean, the, how do you know that it's going to be implemented? It's great to have plans oh, and stuff, but if it's not implemented, it's, yeah. you know, a moot point. Okay. The in-country USAID staff write the drafts, and then it is reviewed endlessly by multiple offices in D.C. Okay. And it finally has to, you know, go through a, a chain of command, only signed off by the administrator who is a presidentially appointed person at USAID. But it... It goes through endless iterations, uh, much. Sounds like academics. <laughs> it is, I was going to say, it's, if anything, it's more stringent than academics. Okay, really? And, oh, God, yeah. It, wow. And one thing that was sort of fun, it was, I'm a professor. I review term papers. Well, this was like working with a bunch of really great grad students. Really smart kids. Huh? Oh, man. <laughs> Everybody who works for AID has a master's or a PhD. Sure. And so when I'm reading the rough draft of somebody who already has a PhD, and you know, I'm, a, I'm grading an A minus paper to make it an A plus paper is what this was like. And so really, I'm just kind of crossing T's and dotting I's. And then it goes through this rigorous review process. And now here you asked, how do we know it's implemented? That mission will not get the money if they don't follow what's in their plan. Uh -huh. Washington will not let the money go out the door to give it to their implementing partners to do the work if they don't follow their plan. So how will you know down the line? I mean, this is you just did this. Uh, what do you hope to see as a result of your work? I mean, do you have like a vision of how you may have helped in the end, with, which is what this is obviously designed to do? I do. I was involved in some mitigation projects. So mitigation is actually putting things in place to reduce greenhouse gas production versus um, greenhouse resilience, which is how do you build things so that they can withstand climate change. Then there's mitigation. How do you build things to stop producing greenhouse gases? So I was involved in plenty of plans to increase resilience. Can you give us some examples? I'm just curious because it, um, it's just fascinating. Sure. Um, in Moldova. Uh, I worked with the USAID people in Moldova and they were working with their government there. 
how to change the electric grid uh, so that it became greener. Um, USAID is taking a very hard look at um, supplying wind and solar in Moldova to help reduce the dependence on coal burning to supply electricity that, by the way, comes both from Moldova but also from Russia. And so there's also there are larger strategic interests here to reduce dependence uh, on Russia and China. I feel like we've had this conversation before, haven't we? It feels like <laughs> maybe this, we. Have. I think we have actually. And you mentioned it's interesting. You mentioned the grid because I think back in uh, Texas when they had the grid go out. I mean, it seems like we need to maybe now do that, some of this in there, our own country. There we do. There is a classic example of not being of not implementing appropriate climate risk management. The the ratepayers in Texas purposefully chose not to spend a few extra bucks and, if you will, climate-proof, literally insulate their grids. Because they All, didn't think it would happen to them, basically. They didn't think it would happen to them, and they, didn't want to, they, they wanted to make a few more bucks uh, on selling power rather than literally just insulating their gas lines insulating their transformers, things that we take for granted here in Minnesota where it's cold. Yeah. But we spend a couple extra bucks and we insulate. They didn't insulate. So all their gas lines froze. And when their gas lines froze, they couldn't heat things with gas. So they tried to up the ante on drawing more electricity and they overwhelmed their electrical grid. And then the whole thing crashed. So they should follow what you're talking to in Moldova, who's going to be protected if they follow your plan versus here in the U.S. because they're not <laughs> doing it. So essentially, you're you, helping somebody overseas, but we're not doing it here ourselves. You got it. Wow. That's absolutely right. So. <laughs> wow. What other sort of mitigation things uh, might you recommend or ha in your recommendations that you've done? Oh, gosh. I know there's a lot, but um, I'm just curious. So people mit mitigation. Um, I believe that Every private home should have at least two square meters of photovoltaic panel. You put that on your house, you're, it's going to lower your fuel bill in a big hurry. You're going to lower your electric bill. How hard is that to do? It's not difficult. There are any number of local contractors that want to do it. There are tax rebates that help make it relatively affordable. And if you're going to be in your home for more than 10 years, you'll amortize the cost from the savings, electrical savings. Hmm. I have a friend uh, who just added a bunch of photo panels to his roof. Uh, he hasn't paid an electric bill in a year, and he even has an electric car that he charges, a uh, fully electric vehicle. And so you can make your meter run backward uh, if you do. You know, I've heard people argue with electric cars and things, and I don't know if this is getting off a little off topic, but then they say, well, the issue is with recycling the batteries and things and all this trash we're going to have. So, you know, you hear some of the – there's with yeah. the positives, there's always something else. Yes. So, yeah, battery technology is not perfect. It It's dirty to mine it. And it's even dirtier to dispose of it. But we have, we know how to do that. It's expensive to do it, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. And so we need to do it. Uh, now, this gets into bigger geopolitical issues of the so-called rare earth elements. They actually aren't particularly rare, okay? But where do we mine them, okay? We mine them these days mostly in China or in unstable parts of Central Africa. Central and South Africa. And so we need these particular rare earths. They're, they're what's in speakers, headphones, 
um, many parts of cell phones and in a lot of batteries. They're also in the turbines on wind you know, on uh, windmills, on and on and on and on. And it's dirty business to mine it, and then it's also dirty business to dispose of it. But we have the technology to do it. It's just expensive. Okay. Do you not do the right thing because it costs a little bit more, or can the entire economy improve because we're doing stuff right? I would argue that. When you were in Washington, D.C. with these other folks talking about the climate, where do you think the biggest issue, where did you focus? Was there a certain part of the world that you think is in imminent danger, for example, or do you say it's all one big hole? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. All right. The, the tropics and the Arctic are in for a world of hurt. They already are. The tropics and even the mid-latitudes where we live are getting so hot, Karen. We're, we're starting to see this already. Farmers, unless you got an air conditioner in your combine, it's too hot to work in the field. A lot of people around here, kids grew up tasseling, detasseling oh, right. corn, right? It's getting so hot, they physically can't survive out there detasseling in the summer. They can't cool off. And so this this is dangerous. Right. And this is hap- it's not just happening in wet Minnesota, this is on the streets of Delhi. You know, the most, some of the most populous cities in the world, there's no place to cool off. It physically is not possible. That's happening. And then the Arctic. Oh, my God. The Arctic, there is so much methane trapped in permafrost, but the permafrost is melting. And then something that has never occurred until the last five years is our lightning storms thunder and lightning in the Arctic. It's getting hot enough there that the, like the convective summer thunderstorms we have here in Minnesota, they're having that in the Arctic. They've never had that before. And so the Arctic, literally the permafrost is getting so dry, it's catching on fire from lightning storms naturally occurring fires, and it's releasing tons of methane, and it's making it hotter. So, I mean, and we see out west in California, uh, the fires there. I mean, they're in another drought, I believe, this year, and yeah. that sort of thing. So when you look at that, is there anything we can really do? You know, after having done this fellowship, and you say, well, we've got these plans, but are we able to do anything in time to Yes, help? we can We can slow it down. And I, I recommend for your next car, certainly get a hybrid or get a fully electric vehicle. Put a couple of photo panels on your roof, all right? Uh, plant another couple of trees in your yard, all right? And now here's a quiz. Tell me what percentage of the grain in this country or the globe that we grow globally feeds animals? I'd say it's very high, like 99%. It's 80%. Okay. 80% of the grain that we grow feeds animals. If we ate lower on the food chain, I'm not saying become a vegan tomorrow, but I'm saying most of us probably have meat three times a day. Bacon, I just want to say I've been a vegetarian for 46 years. So Beautiful. Yeah. So, so many people, yeah. you know, they have bacon with their eggs in the morning. They'll have a ham and cheese sandwich for lunch and then a burger or a steak or a pork chop for dinner. Okay. How about those of you who three, day, three times a day eat meat, try and doing it once a day. Okay. Have a, have a tuna fish sandwich or an egg salad sandwich for lunch. Just have eggs and toast at breakfast. You don't need the extra calories in the bacon anyway. And, and at my house, um, we do that mostly. But then there are a couple nights a week we say we are not going to have meat tonight. Now, sometimes when we don't have meat, we have fish. 
But sometimes when we don't have meat, literally we'll just do rice and beans. How great is good old rice and beans if you I've flavor been it up right? Doing it for years. I don't, it's and not, so yeah. eating lower on the food chain okay. will, if everybody did that, we would use so many fewer resources. Sure. All right. And so when you replace your roof, make it light colored. So it's highly reflective. So we think in Minnesota, oh, we got to stay warm in the winter. That doesn't use as much energy as the air conditioning in the summer. If you put a white roof or a light colored roof, you're going to reflect so much more energy. Put a light colored roof on your house next time you replace your roof. Add photo panels when you do it. So just some basic things we can all do. Yes. I mean, really. Of course, reduce, recycle, reuse, but that's small potatoes. Right. Okay. The big picture stuff is how much, you know, your carbon footprint. And you can reduce it hugely by changing the vehicle you drive and getting photo panels on your roof. So now that you've done this Jefferson Science Fellows Program, you've, you've done mm-hmm. your sabbatical, you're back. Do you have any responsibilities from here on out to the, the USAID program? Yeah, the, so I'll tell you a little bit about the Jefferson Science Fellow Program. It's through the National Academy of Sciences. And it's competitive. Professors from across the country apply, mm-hmm. and they only select a, about a dozen a year. The year I did it, there only selected eight of us. Mm-hmm. And we go uh, and we work for one full year, either at state or AID. And then we're we're uh, informal advisors for five more years. Oh, okay. So you will continue so your advising? I still talk to them. I still collaborate with them. If COVID weren't here, I'd be doing a little travel for them this summer, going overseas. Um, we'll see if things loosen up. That might happen again. I'm not sure. But then at, here at MSU, I've completely revamped a couple of my classes. I'm offering a class I have never offered before. I'm offering a course in natural disasters, oh, wow. which is almost all climate related now. Mm-hmm. Um, my conservation of natural resources class has a whole bunch of new material. Uh, I've got a new grad seminar I took over for another faculty member um, called Environmental Issues. And so all these things are, our students are benefiting from. This year, I was able to go abroad and go work for USAID and do this. Did COVID affect climate change at all in any positive or negative way? Oh, it it, it affected it positively. Actually, we stopped we stopped driving. We the stopped flying. Was, yeah, big deal. We yeah. stopped driving and flying, and so the air pollution reduced drastically. But it's back. It's coming back. It's coming back. Yeah, it's coming back. And I don't know if any of you remember seeing the photos, literally from Kathmandu. They haven't been able to see the Himalaya forever from Kathmandu because of air quality or from Delhi, and you could see yeah. Mount Everest on a clear day. And so those kinds of things happened. Well, like you mentioned, there's some simple things we each can do, and if we all do our part, hopefully we can make at least some difference. Absolutely. Every day is Earth Day. Yes. And you can do that. You can live that. And I'm so honored to be on the show today that every day is Earth Day. And I believe it strongly enough that I went and tried to live that for a whole year, serving all of us to make the planet a better place. Wonderful. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Don Friend here at Minnesota State University, Mankato, a geography professor here at the university, and his wonderful sabbatical that you did. Sabbatical leave here in D.C. We look forward to hearing more from you, and and thanks for your ideas. Appreciate it. Karen, thanks. So glad to be here today. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop.
And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.